is entitled, Thy Kingdom Come. It's part two. If you were here last week, we talked about uh, the Lord's Prayer as part one. Today is part two. Um, if you missed it, and um, it's online, or else you can ask me and I can send you a copy of uh, the sermon written down if you want to study it. In fact, if you ever miss a sermon, if you'd ever like, I can uh, email you or print out a sermon for you if you're interested in that. But today is Thy Kingdom Come, part two, on the study of the Lord's Prayer. We understood last week that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us how to approach God daily. And the strength of our prayers do not reside in merely the words we say, but rather in our acknowledgement of the power of God and reverence and honor that we ascribe to His name. If we know there is power in His name, when we pray in His name, we believe that He's going to do what He said He's going to do. But if we think prayer is just something that we should do then still have a plan B, then there's no power in that prayer. That's why when Jesus began to teach it on the Lord's Prayer, He said, this is the manner in which you pray. This is how to pray. Not just the words you say, but how to approach God. Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus said, in this manner, therefore pray. We talked about this last week. Therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let us always remember that our focus when we go to prayer is on God. Not our problems. Our focus is on God. That's first and foremost because God is almighty. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And He is sovereign. Prayer is a time for us to bring our will into alignment with God's will. And transition from hope into faith. Let me explain. Hope is believing in the things that God has promised. So when we come into God with prayer, we get prayer, and then we, as we go throughout the week in our jobs and with people, we continue to hope onto the things that God has promised, and we stand on those promises, and we, and we hope for those things because God has promised them. Hope is believing in the things that God has promised. Faith is believing in the One who makes those promises. You see, when you're in a trial, when you're tossed about by the world, the enemy will attack your hope. He will make you look at the things that you can see and he'll tell you, this is not going to happen. Look at this relationship, it's crumbling. Look at this job, you're having problems. Look at this thing that you lost. He will try to focus you on an object to attack your hope. And if we stay in hope, when we are under attack, we kind of get rattled. And some Christians start to think, I'm, I must not be a strong Christian if I'm doubting. No, they're just the enemy is attacking your hope. So it's at those times we come to prayer when we transition to faith. Because when you're attacked by hope, you start to think that you've been forgotten, that your prayers have been delayed, that you must be doing something wrong. Has it ever happened to you besides me? Anybody happened to? We talked about this last week. You're with a friend, and they're eating broccoli. And do you, do you tell them that they got a piece of broccoli on their teeth? Do you? Then how come no one else told me my fly was undone this morning? 
<sighs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Okay. <laughs> At least this is not on the tape, is it, Greg? <laughs> That's all right. We're going to switch from hope to faith. You understand what I'm saying? The enemy will attack your hope, and so we just switch over to faith. It's not I'm going to hope that, that this is going to happen. I'm going to believe God because God said His Word's going to happen. I'm going to believe God and, and know that He is able to deliver. Know that He is the one. It's not my hope or my lack of hope. It's I'm going to believe my God because my God is faithful. Amen? It's what prayer does. It, gets, it aligns us up into God's will. We boldly go to God in prayer. We acknowledge His authority. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. We acknowledge His authority, His sovereignty, His will. It's no longer about our inability to hope. It's about acknowledging the power of our God and the power in His name. Ephesians 3, verse 20 tells us that He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. If I wrote this sentence in school, I'd be punished for, for repeating myself. It's redundant to say exceedingly, abundantly, above. But that's what God does. We can't describe Him with our words. But God is able to do, no matter what you think, He goes above that. We prayed that God would open the door for us and He brought us here and we love people here. We love you. We love the church. We love the era. He did so much more than we could were even thinking of. That's just one example. When we go to prayer, if we go and believe in our God, that He can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all things because of the power that works in us. The power that works in us is faith in our God because there is power in His name. Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's a part of the prayer that we go through kind of quick. And almost because it has that rhythmic rhyme to it. Your, will be do- your kingdom come, your will be done. But do we really mean, do we really understand what we're asking for? I believe we don't. Jesus teaches us to pray for, his, for God's kingdom to come. And then for His will to be done. In order for these two things to happen, we often need to promptly and consistently obey God instead of just waiting for Him to usher in His kingdom. We don't just say, God, bring in your kingdom and I'm going to go live my life. And when it comes here, let me know. And I know we laugh, but sometimes that's kind of how we approach life. If we're going to pray for God's kingdom to come, guess what? He's going to use us. The body of Christ is the hope in this world. And you know this world needs hope. It's looking for all kinds of things, for drugs, relationships, and all these things to satisfy itself. And the only thing that can satisfy the darkness that's in the world is the light of Jesus in us. It's human nature for us to sit back and to ask God to move when He has already commanded us to go forth into the world to advance His kingdom and His cause. He has commanded us to love others. 
how many know that some people are hard to love? Yeah? But how many know that we are hard to love? But God loved us anyways. In fact, He demonstrated His love by, for, by dying for us. God commands us to extend forgiveness, especially when we think that they don't deserve forgiveness. We didn't deserve forgiveness, but Jesus gave it anyways. He's commanded us to extend forgiveness. He commands us all to share His Gospel, not just the preachers and the evangelists. Now we do it in different ways, but we're commanded to share the Gospel, to walk in faith, and to redeem the time that we have. Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6. It says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Be honest. What are you doing on a daily basis to redeem the time that you've been given? We don't know when God's going to call us home. We don't. So if we take each day as a gift, what are we doing to redeem this time? Contrary to the pattern of the world today, our purpose in life is not to spend all of our free time watching TV, sports, entertainment, and world news. Jesus did not die so we could spend more time on the Internet and on our phones and in the newspapers following politics instead of reading His Word and praying for others, and serving others, and sharing the Gospel with people in our lives. The point of the Lord's Prayer is to convict us to change. If we are saying these prayers and it no longer convict us, then we lose the power of the prayer in the first place. If we are asking for God's kingdom to come and His will be done, it should convict us into saying, oh God, what, could, what do I need to be doing for you? And we all fail. We all mess up. That's why we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us to shower His grace upon us. If we're going to faithfully say the Lord's Prayer, we ought to understand and mean what we're praying. The truth of the matter is that the Word of God offends the flesh. It has to offend the flesh in order to bring about change. Our sinful nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve, it's otherwise known as the flesh, our sinful nature doesn't like to be corrected. It doesn't like to be told that it did something wrong. For our flesh has a different goal than our spirit. Our flesh seeks to gratify itself, to satisfy our desires, to make us feel comfortable. In fact, our flesh, maybe you heard this voice, our flesh tells us, you're, you're okay. You don't got to change anything. You're doing fine. Don't worry about changing anything. And yet, the Word says that, that God is faithful to complete the work He began in us until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, how is that going to happen if we say, we're okay, we don't need to change? Our flesh will tell you, you don't need to change to keep you from becoming more like God. All of us are on different lines of that continuum. All of us are trying to become more like God. If we listen to our flesh and feed it with what it wants, 
the enemy wins. But our spirit has a completely different goal that is diametrically opposed to the flesh. Our spirit seeks to glorify the Lord in all that we do. How is this done? Let me share a verse that's not often talked about. In fact, I've heard this before, and maybe you've heard this saying before. Uh, Nancy and I saw it on a uh, church sign on the way back from Ohio this summer, or this spring break, and it said, Too much sugary preaching causes truth decay. Huh? See, there's a lot of churches now, now that are really growing and really big, and there are a lot of sugary, fluffy messages that walk out and make you feeling good. Oh, I feel good about myself. Now, there, there's a balance of grace and truth. But if we are not looking to change to become more like Jesus, then what are we doing in church? Amen? Galatians 5.24 Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, if we call our Christians, if we call ourselves Christians, if we take on His name, I'm no longer Brad, I am a Christian, saved by God's grace. If we call ourselves Christians and we ask for God's kingdom to come, then we must be willing to crucify our flesh with its passions and desires. Here's the truth about that. We're not going to like doing it. We just aren't. It's going to be extremely hard. We're going to want to take the easy way out and feed our desires instead. Now listen, I'm not saying that we've got to be perfect. There's times when we need a rest. There's times when we've been so overworked we just need to get away. Praise God for that. I love living up north. We can get those, those away times a lot more. God gave us that to enjoy us. There's a balance. But if, if, if we spend our whole life seeking after to feed our flesh, that's what I'm talking about. Take the breaks. Take the rest. Take the vacations. But we need to understand that we need to be feeding the Spirit and not the flesh. Jesus teaches us that it's a daily choice to follow Him and to bring our will into submission. Luke 9.23 goes along with this. Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, if you're going to call yourself a Christian and you're going to desire to come after me, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, if we're going to truly follow Jesus, then we must daily deny ourselves. Why? Because the flesh doesn't take any time off. In fact, when you're tired and you want to take off time off, I just need a time out from life. That's when the flesh just gears up. You know what I mean? That's when the temptation comes. So we must make a daily choice to daily deny ourselves, to daily pick up our cross, but not walk in our strength, but walk in the power of His Spirit and the fullness of His grace. This is what Jesus meant when He showed us how to pray. We don't just pray for God to start doing something. You know why? Because He already is. God is already moving. He's he's already convicting. He's already redeeming and restoring and empowering. Prayer aligns our will with God's will. It puts our hand in God's hand. It puts our heart in God's heart. Prayer gets us walking by faith and not by sight. It gets us walking in the power of the Spirit of God. It reminds us that we can't, but God can. 
How many of you remember this verse from a couple weeks ago? It was our memory verse, Zechariah 4, 6. For it is not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. When we come to prayer, God reminds us, if you're struggling, maybe you need to check this first. Have you been trying to do things in your own power? Have you been trying to, to, to change things in your own strength? Have you been trying to use your own reason to change things? And God reminds us through His living Word, it's not by your might or by power or by your effort or by your logic. It's by my Spirit. Through prayer, we submit to God so that God can work through us by the Holy Spirit. Prayer teaches us to and conditions us to hear God's voice. Prayer was never meant to merely have us give a list of things for God to do. God, here's my list. And then I'm going to go about my day, and at the end of the day, I'm going to check to see if God did that list for me. I know we laugh, but we, we do that. We do that. That, that, that. There's too many prayers where it's just like, give, give God a list. Then I'm going to go live life. Then I'm going to come back to prayer again. I'm going to see if God did that. We call upon God in a, a Prayer is, is about waiting on God and hearing His voice and bringing our will into alignment with Him. Prayer is about submitting to God, waiting on Him, so that He can grant us, first of all, discernment, and then give us wisdom and build our faith and empower us by the Holy Spirit to be His witnesses in the world in all that we do. Isaiah 40, verse 31. I'm going to challenge you. It's school time. Our kids are back in school. We had to turn our minds back on because they are on deep freeze over the summer. I'm going to challenge you. This is our memory verse for next week. I have a lot of family and friends coming next week. <laughs> I want to show off. Is there someone that could take this to heart. And I know it's longer and I thought about maybe I should give it a huge verse, but this is a powerful verse. And a lot of you kind of know it already. Isaiah 40, verse 31, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Is there someone, are there some people who are willing to say, this is tough, but I'm going to do it for God. I'm going to put His Word in my heart. I'm going to study this. I'm going to know this first because I know there's going to be a time when I need it. When I'm in a trial and I need to switch from hope to faith, I'm going to believe God's truth, His Word, that He's going to renew my strength, not, not because of my strength, but because of His strength. And I'm going to run and not be weary. I'm going to do the things of God. I'm not just going to start the things of God. I'm going to finish the things of God because it's not by power nor by might, but by God's Spirit. Amen? This is what spending time with God in prayer does. We mount up with wings like eagles, empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand in agreement with God that His kingdom come and that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, in heaven, no one stands against God. There was one that stood against God a while ago and it didn't work out too well for him. No one stands against God in heaven. They stand ready to serve God. They stand ready to be given their next assignment. They stand ready to do God's will. God has sent us forth 
into the earth to share His truth, His gospel, His grace, His love, and His message of hope. Why? Because Jesus is the only hope that can save this world. We have to believe that. The minute we stop believing that, the minute we've lost our purpose in life. Jesus is the only hope for this world. Jesus has not called us to go into the world to fight the world system by the world's power or by human knowledge. He's not called us to get puffed up in knowledge, but rather to be endued with power from on high by the Holy Spirit. God has called every single one of us to abide in His Word and to come into alignment with the Spirit of God so that He can use us to change the world for Him. This is how God unifies and empowers the body of Christ to bring His kingdom forth and allow His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.11 Give us this day our daily bread. Indeed, we ask God to provide us with our basic needs of sustenance. But this request is twofold. For we also ask Him to give us each day what we need to continue on. Sometimes God gives us strength. Other times He gives us humility. Sometimes He gives us a challenge to teach us and a plot to apply our faith and to stand on His Word. Sometimes God gives us comfort because that's what we need. He knows what we need. Sometimes God lights a fire under us to advance His kingdom in the earth. God knows what we need. In fact, if we remember before the Lord's Prayer, there was that one verse that says, your Father knows what you need even before you go to Him in prayer. If we understand that, then we would, when we ask for our daily bread, we know, God, I'm not just going to ask for this. You know what I need, so you give me what I need. Give me my assignment and give me what I need to make it through this day. Our job is to ask for our daily bread and God promise us to give us what we need. But understand that Jesus commands us to ask for our daily bread, not our weekly bread. We don't just go to church on Sunday and hear the sermon and say, I'm going to live on that all week. This will get you through today. But each of us has to go to God every day. God, give me my daily bread, what I need for this day to go through this day. This harkens us back to the Israelites when God fed them in the desert for 40 years daily with manna from heaven. They were given daily bread each day to meet their needs. They couldn't save any until morning or it would no longer be good. It taught them to depend on God every morning for what they needed to survive and to continue in His will. When we ask for our daily bread, we are asking for a fresh revelation of Jesus every day. God, show me who you are today. Through this situation, through this difficult meeting, through these people over here, show me who you are in this situation. John 6.35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. When we ask for our daily bread, we're asking for Jesus to speak through us, through His, through His living Word to us, to sustain us with His presence, and to cause us to be continually transformed by the Spirit of truth. When we don't ask God for our daily bread, we lounge back in our easy chairs and kick our feet up. And then we're prone to complaining and negativity and doubting and fear. But when we ask God for our daily bread, we're also expecting Him to give it. 
So it's like we're on the edge of our seat, leaning into God, expecting Him to eagerly meet that request. That's the faith that moves mountains. That's the faith that believes against when, when it's against all despair. That's the faith that God is looking for. Matthew 6.12 And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the point in the Lord's Prayer where the traditional recitation of it has us say, forgive us our trespasses instead of forgive us our debts. Do you know why that is? In the original Greek, the words that are used here convey the meaning of owing a financial or a moral debt or obligation. In Luke's version of the prayer, Jesus says, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. But why does the traditional version of the prayer say trespasses? Well, in context, two verses later in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Jesus goes on after what we would consider the Lord's Prayer. He goes on to say, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, at the end of the prayer, Jesus immediately expounds on the importance of forgiveness. He does this by purposely choosing a different word for sin with another application than the one used in the prayer. This alternate word for sin means a kind of sin that oversteps its boundaries. What we would call a trespass. Remember, Jesus is teaching us how to pray, not just merely what to say. Jesus wanted His disciples and He wanted us to understand both senses of the word sin. One, that it's a, we owe a debt. And another, that we've trespassed into territory that does not belong to us. But why do some English Christian traditions use the word trespasses when Jesus' actual prayer used the word debts? How many have ever heard of William Tyndale? William Tyndale was responsible for translating the original uh, Greek and Hebrew texts into English. He lived in the 16th century. At that time, when you translated the word, it was punishable by death. So he translated that, and although early church fathers like Augustine and Wycliffe used the word debts in their language in that translation, he, for some reason, preferred the word trespasses. Well, after he translated the, 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 the Bible into English, he lived in fear. Eventually was betrayed by a friend ten years later and was killed for translating the Bible so that we could have it in English. By 1611, the King James Version went back to using debts. Trespasses first appeared in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer in 1549. And as of 1979 edition, it still was being used. The pilgrims actually rejected the Catholic and the Anglican Book of Common Prayer because they believed that prayer should be spontaneous and not scripted. Yet Tyndale's version became widely accepted by many Christian traditions. It became so pervasive that even in the English Catholic churches, they adopted and still use it today, that word trespasses in the Lord's Prayer. Even though when they pray the Lord's Prayer in Latin, they use the word debts. 
Yet the bigger point to see here is that when we are praying to God and confessing our sins, it's, it's important to understand both applications of debts and trespasses. Our modern understanding of debt is different from Jesus' audience and most people in history. How many know that nowadays almost everyone is in debt? We all owe. And that because almost everyone is, we're almost all immune to it. There's a 30-day grace period for paying your bills. And if you don't pay, you get one of those really fun calls. Hey, did you forget about us? People can file for bankruptcy protection. Nowadays, politicians are working really hard to work on making a huge dent in forgiving the massive student debt in our country. Do you know that there's almost $2 trillion in student debt in our country right now? Owed by over 50 million people. And I understand there's a, there's a break for that, but if we, if we erase all that debt, then we don't understand what the consequence of that. People back in Jesus' time understood the consequence of debt because if you were in debt, it was a crime, and you were thrown into prison. In fact, when the early colonists came, if you, didn't, if you were in debt, you were thrown into prison. And so there was a man by the name of James Oglethorpe. He started a new colony called Georgia. And Georgia was created for people, instead of being thrown into prison because of their debt, they could now go live in this colony of Georgia. It's called the debtor's colony. People back then understood the power and the meaning of debt. And maybe William Tyndale said, you know what, I'm gonna, I want to emphasize the fact that when we trespass, we violate something else. By trespassing, it means that we've committed something against someone else. A trespasser occupies a realm or exercises a right that rightfully belongs to someone else. A trespasser violates another person. This can be very damaging. In fact, it can, in fact, it can rise to the level of treason and result in a sentence of capital punishment. That is what happened in the Garden of Eden when what, and what we all have done since. We have not merely borrowed from God an unpayable debt for which we can appeal for bankruptcy protection. We have seized a realm that does not belong to him, we have, that does not belong to us. We have violated God. We have committed a trespass, and we owe a consequence or a wage for our sin. How many know what the Bible says about the wages of our sin? Right? Amen? Romans 6.23 The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's only when we understand our debt because of our trespasses against Him that we can fully appreciate His gift of eternal life. For those who repent and place their faith in what Jesus has done, their debt is canceled out completely, legally. And now God requires us to do the same thing to others. He requires us to forgive others who have occupied a realm or have exercised a right that belongs to us since we have been forgiven a far worse violation. When we understand all that Jesus expects of us and are willing to follow Him faithfully, we comprehend the depth of His teaching, we receive the fullness of His grace and the restoration and redemption of our souls from being forgiven completely by our Father who arts in heaven. That is why we hallow His name. 
I want to share a song as we reflect on what God has spoken through His Word today.